Welcome to the On The Way podcast, a podcast exploring a non-violent, non-dualistic, compassionate faith life. My name is Dom Fay, and it is uh, such a treat to be back at the spiritual home of the podcast, uh, Peter Katz's office here at the Cathedral, Peter. It, it hasn't been too often in the last few years. We've sat in these these couches where many of our episodes have been recorded, but it's lovely to be back. It sure is. It's uh, wonderful to be back in this space. I'm missing Sue, however. Yes. Who has COVID, yes. unfortunately. She does. She's uh, she's a last-minute scratching from the <laughs> podcast uh, with uh, with her COVID number coming up. Um, so she is at home recovering from that. But we are thrilled today to welcome uh, an amazing guest who actually has uh, been a bit of a listener to the podcast as well. So the world's emerging today. Uh, Kenneth Allen Miles is a specialist in radiology and nuclear medicine who has been at the cutting edge of medical imaging for over 30 years. His research at the interface of scientific disciplines has led to internationally recognized innovations in the assessment of patients suffering stroke or cancer, turning his attention to the interface between science and religion. He now aims to demonstrate that science can support a commitment to God. Uh, His book is From Billiard Balls to Bishops, A Scientist's Introduction to Christian Worship. Uh, Ken, thank you so much for for jumping behind the microphone and joining us for the podcast. Thanks thanks for inviting me. It's, uh, It's great to be here. Well, look, this conversation is going to cover some of the territory we have explored before in terms of how science and faith work together rather than being enemies. Um, But there's also a a specific focus in your book uh, about how actually a scientific understanding of what the experience of worship and encounter is can help shape the way we we design our faith lives, I think, in a a really beautiful way. Um, We'll get to to some of that a bit later on. But to begin with, I'm, I'm curious if you can share a little bit uh, about your story, I suppose, in mixing uh, a life in the medical field with with a strong faith life. Yes, well, um, I uh, was a scientist first, and um, became a Christian at medical school, and that required um, slotting in uh, slotting in the the faith with the science I was learning. And uh, at times that actually has been quite difficult at times. Not evolution, interestingly. It was, it was how God acts in the world has been the, the, the main thing for me. Um, but because medicine is, is about um, integrating multiple sources of information, it, it sort of, uh, I think that the actual medical context is quite helpful. And uh, I think there are also medical stories are quite good for explaining some other, some other, some other principles. Right. So if you were to talk a little bit about your journey then over the, the decades since medical school, and uh, I, I imagine perhaps being surrounded by this idea that science and faith are enemies and, and constantly at war with each other, how would you talk about, I guess, the, the dynamic between these two elements of what it is to be Ken and how they've operated together? Well, I suppose I've been puzzled by why people would think they were antagonistic, and so much so that I started reading uh, Dawkins and Hitchens to try and try and I was looking for an argument against it but didn't find one uh, funnily enough I mean Dawkins particularly uh, I found was lacking an argument and Hitchens was just so slippery it was difficult to pin down it's uh, and uh, and so so that was been part of the part of the journey but it's been but also on the other side it's it's uh, reading reading authors <coughs> like uh, Alistair McGrath Nancy Murphy and 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 so on who are on the other side of it there was seem to be a lot of um useful talk about how science and religion you know are not only compatible but can actually work together without any specific examples and um so i was keen to to develop uh, an actual example of or of, of how science can actually contribute to faith rather than you know on a practical level and and mm. worship seemed to be a good place a good place to start with it fascinating well i know peter you were one of the the early readers of ken's book and and have given a quote with it uh, when you first came across it i know that that oh, as i mentioned we've spoken um science and faith many times but the particularities of exploring the how science can explain what worship can do in us. Um, what, what struck you about, about Ken's book? Um, well, I was absolutely delighted because we've, we've always dealt with science and religion, well, and certainly in my sphere, always dealt, dealt with science and religion um, in terms of how compatible they are. Um, I thought the really brilliant thing in Ken's book was he was actually delving into uh, how our brains work and psychology 
to show how worship actually um, shapes us and how how using all the things we have here at the cathedral, you know, a, a building that's complex. I love the fact that you know, Ken said that if you've got a complex space, you're more likely to have a complex faith <laughs> and, and you're more likely to be tolerant. I thought that was really excellent because mm. that was... And how, how using ritual and um, smoke, you know, smells, taste colourful robes, using uh, liturgical action, manual actions, all were part of the experience of, of, of actually creating something that really works for people and being able to show using um, brain mapping how it actually does work for people and how it has positive effects on people's health and all those sort of... I thought it was a really refreshing way to approach the whole subject to say look people this actually works mm. and here's the science of why it works so it was absolutely delightful yes and th- th- these aren't just sort of historical quirks um there's a movement in, in the uk who who want to get rid of all that stuff yeah. and um uh, on the grounds that it's it seems to be on the grounds that it's outdated with no other reason and and yet uh they don't seem to have considered the uh, uh the the question of whether science can tell us something about their, their u- usefulness. But, but there is, a, of course, there's a danger that, that, that I was only too aware of that, uh, that people may interpret this as trying to explain it away. Mm. And um, so the, the first, there is the first step is to, is to, you know, is to show that, 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 that science and religion don't have to interact in that way. It's not that science is explaining it away. If you see science and uh, faith as one of the could be different sides of the same same coin, um, then you can start using the science in a way that isn't threatening to the to the faith. Yeah. I just thought it was a wonderful way of showing how it all works together and how our lives are enriched by an understanding, but it's not explaining it away. It's just saying the reason why you think this works for you is because it works for you. And here, here is a picture of your brain showing that it's working for you. It's, mm. I thought it was just really delightful because it, it sort of deals with, you know, often um, stuff gets explained away or dismissed as being, oh, that's just a feel good or a psych- it's just psychology, as if something that's, if this is something wrong with that. And I just thought it was absolutely brilliant to have the to have what I experience in worship, which for me is the core of the faith, to have that sort of validated by something else I hold really dear, which is science. Well, what's interesting to me, I think, Peter, is something that I initially uh, that initially drew me into the Anglican tradition in the earlier coffees that you and I had uh, a number of years ago now was the, the three-legged stool approach and the, the role reason has in the Anglican tradition. Having grown up in a tradition which asked us sometimes to check our brains at the door um, and, and come in and believe a whole lot of things and, and do a whole lot of things that perhaps weren't grounded in in, a, in any kind of reason or, or, um, or intellect or didn't stand up to reason or intellect. So the ability to bring our brains along for the journey, I think, appealed to me a lot about our Anglican tradition and Perhaps for many people, um, you know, they're not interested in an expression of any faith or spirituality that, that doesn't involve the ability to critique and to analyze and to say, is this actually true? Have we gone way too far off the deep end here? Or, or is this grounded in what reality actually is? So that has been really wonderful. And yet you, you write in the book, Ken, uh, about the, the uh, necessity to have an experience of something to move beyond the the analytical rational brain that while it has a, a role to play there is something bigger that goes on in the experience and encounter of worship that has to to some extent take place in a different part of ourselves than than the analytical mind yes uh i think the um, there's both scientific and theological reasons for for that um i think we have to remember i mean there's perhaps there's a tendency to to think that uh that worship is about about affecting the mind primarily or only, and that may be linked with this idea that uh, um, that is not really biblical. Is that the idea that it's our mind or soul that goes to heaven? Mm. And if you believe in in a resurrection of the body, then we need to focus worship on the body too. Um, and uh, if you think go to the science side of that. When you look at conditions that uh, medical conditions that are alt- associated with alterations of belief, 
um, they are often a, 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 an important feature of the of the mechanism for those diseases is not a failing of the mind but a failing of the body and so and typically um, specifically this body system called the autonomic nervous system which is the automatic regulation of of heart and lungs and blood pressure and and so on and so forth and so in a sense uh, the more i thought about it the more i came to the conclusion that that um that uh, Blaise Pascal was right. If you if you want to deal with unbelief, the way to do it is to do the practice of worship, not mm. to make the arguments. And um, and he, I mean he made that uh, that uh, came to that conclusion over three hundred years ago. And, and the science has some subsequently shown that his his way of approaching unbelief has some merit. Mm. It's what converted me. I mean. Uh, in terms of the arguments, I'm still a really good atheist. I can sort of, <laughs> <laughs> I can sort of unpack it all um, if I if I wanted to, but for me it was discovering, uh, walking in on an act of worship where people were absolutely transfixed by what they were doing, and for that resonating with other experiences in my life where I was overcome by awe and wonder, and it was. There was no argument, it was just pure, overwhelming wonder. And because of that, <clears throat> I wanted to explore uh, what this was about. And in the end, I discovered there was a whole, whole packet of spirituality behind the practice of religion that we just don't see in, played out in the public sphere public sphere often has religion just talking about people's sex lives or some sort of broad morality and I discovered through that path of awe through worship that there was actually this way of being that was actually transformative and that's what drew me in I, you know, I'm, I still have very little time for all those arguments about sort of um, morality I, I think we just get too caught up on that and um, for me, it's it's the joy of being of encounter. That is the is the thing. That's what got me. No, no one would have ever argued me into the faith because mm -hmm. I was so determined to argue against it. And I was basically it slipped in behind me and took overtook me. And suddenly I thought, I'm I'm gone. You know, I've I've stepped over the edge, and I can't go back. Yes, and and. Uh your experience is is, is um, visible in research. There was one example as a study that found that the onset of atheism in, in people, because I guess most people aren't born atheists, but the onset of atheism is is linked to the exposure people have to to uh, religion, not not to do with what arguments they've they've had, but so, and also countries which which. Uh, um, where the, where the conduct of religion is less obvious tend to be uh, less religious countries. I mean, it sounds a bit sort of self self uh, validating, but it, it's it's likely that the lack of exposure is is uh, a major factor in why people um, are atheists. Well, I was mm. brought up that way. I mean, I was yeah. brought up detached from the church largely, except for scripture lessons at school, um, which were really um, trying to teach us stuff. Um, most of it sort of interesting, but not engaging. Um, and no, at no point was it about experience. Mm. And, and this comes back to another thing that, that uh, um, as I've worked on the book, has, has become more important to me, is, is the... The visible presence, an audible presence that of 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 uh, Christianity that is presented by the a physical church building mm. that is there in in the community, and it's clearly for the purpose of worship, as opposed to having a building that could be a, a, a warehouse or a mm. cinema or a cafe, which come with it a whole load of other automated behaviours which which may not be helpful. So so I think. Um, that, or you know, the part of that, to ensure that the sort of uh, experiences that you're describing can are more likely to occur, I think the actual physical buildings of churches are important. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And we're finding that across the Western world, that the churches that look like churches 
are attracting people, and particularly cathedrals, are attracting people and growing. And the churches that are more like a sort of multi-purpose centre can be a basketball court or a church or um, are not speaking to people because there's not that transcendent experience. And in your book you talk about the, <coughs> the effect of height and raising up and and even the language of and I find myself doing it in the Eucharist you know, it, 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 it towards the end of the uh, Eucharistic prayer it says accept our praise of prayer and thanksgiving and I always lift my hands and I look straight up at the rose at the window at the west end of the cathedral and someone once said to me um, does that mean that you believe that sort of God is up there in heaven even though you talk about heaven not being up there and I said well there's a sense in which psychologically we still need that imagery of being lifted up and, and of something being beyond us and above us that draws us out of ourselves. And, and you make that point really well in yeah. your book in one of the latter chapters. Yeah, well, the science shows that, that, uh, that language and position are closely linked. And it, it may be due to the fact that, evolutionarily speaking, that... Uh, that uh, a social animal like early humans had to communicate threats very rapidly and and the position of the threat so that language and and position be, became linked but it but it means that not only um I mean, it, it it sort of works both ways if you present uh god related words our our attention is drawn upwards um just just by this this inbuilt mechanism and if you then combine that with uh, features high in a, in, a, in a church, often stars on the ceiling, for example, and um, that uh, then that induces another phys a physiological reaction because of uh, of being alerted to a to a a, um, a stimulus that uh, is of, of potential interest, and that causes physiological responses in the body, which may contribute to the health effects and also to to belief. Mm. And, you know, it, as you touch on that, it, it reminds me, a thought I commonly had reading the, the book, Ken, it took me back to a, an evening service I ran at a Lutheran church for a number of years, uh, you know, a while ago, and how I was probably so caught in um, the need to be able to explain and rationalize everything that I would constantly, especially early on, stop through the service and go, we are now moving into this part of the service. This is why we do this part of the service. This is where it came from. Here's the context of this part of the service. And now here's what you're going to do in this part of the service. And my thinking with this was that we'd finally be able to make things clear cut. You'd know why we were doing the things we were doing and it would all fit a little bit better. And you wouldn't have people sitting there going, what's this about? That's a bit weird that they do that or whatever else. But naturally what happened is, you know, it, it took the whole, um, whatever you want to say, the, the oomph out of it, the magic, the sense of something occurring suddenly disappeared because it was like, you know, the moment you pin down a butterfly, the butterfly's dead now. <laughs> and so th there is this bizarre thing, this maybe, I don't want to use the word conflict, maybe tension's a better word, between our desire to make sense of things and to make things clearly understandable and then that, that need to, to surrender that and move into a different part of ourselves to encounter the mystery that, that we call God. Yeah, yes, I, I th that is actually really quite important um, because, um, I mean, if you think about it in, in other times, with, with music, if you're, a, if you're a student of music, you, you might just listen to the music and enjoy the beauty of, of the music, or you might um, break it down and analyse it. But ideally, you wouldn't do them at the same time. You would, you know, you'd you would have a, a an analytical section that was was separate from the listening, and it seems to be unusual for for uh, churches to have those opportunities to explain to people, you know, what goes on, and it, and I would suggest it would be better done at a different time or, or in a book, um, such that that you don't break that 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 flow. When you combine it with with that uh, the study I, I mentioned in the book about where people were presented uh, with various words that would switch on analytical thinking, um, mm -hmm. and then and then they measured their commitment to religious statements. Um, and uh, if you're presented with with certain words that switch on analytical thinking, like the word analyze um, or um, rational or, or whatever. Um, you know that, that that wasn't a really good place to be during worship worship service. So 
so, but the, at other times, that way of thinking is quite appropriate for religion, that's just, or for faith. They just need to be at different, different moments, ideally. So how, as a church, we present those opportunities and communicate that, that they're worth going to is, is, is uh, I think, a problem. Well, in the past, we've had, well, for that very reason, I, I really don't like having instructions or directions given during worship. I just think you just let it take people on a journey and people people know when to sit or stand and you don't need to be giving them lots of instructions or explaining, you know, we're going to take bread and wine now, we're going to do this, so just let it be. Um, but people do have a, a, a questions about it, so we run for, and we haven't done it for a while because of COVID, but it's one thing we've been asked to get back to. We do, we do an instructed Eucharist from time to time, where uh, one priest and a deacon um, do their bits in a, of a service, and a narrator steps in at various times and says, "Now you'll notice that they're doing this and they're doing this and they're doing this," and it's not intended. And in fact, as part of that, we don't take communion. We just because we've we've actually taken it to the lab and we're sort of cutting it open and we're having a look at it, yeah. and so we don't we don't even pretend it's an act of worship. So so you're right. We actually separate the explanation and the exploration of the meaning from the experience of, in, of encounter. To, for that very reason, otherwise you just will always that that process will always take people to a different space. And, and it'd be interesting to get your view on this. The one thing that's always struck me as a problem in that regard is knowing when to make the notices, to announce the notices in a church service. Yeah. Um, because uh, it's, 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 for me personally, it's a, it's a moment that breaks that, yep. that, that pattern. Yep. And um, it, it doesn't seem to be a good place to put there it. There is no good place. There is mm. no good place. Um, here, many years ago, they uh, many years ago now they did the notices at the beginning of the service before, and uh, so the notices would be given, and then people would be asked to sort of enter into time of preparation. But what happened was people started arriving ten minutes later because <laughs> 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 they knew that the notices were on, and so it was safe. And um, um, I was in a, a uh, in another cathedral for the dean's conference just last weekend, and. They had the notices in the middle before the greeting of peace, which is actually what I grew up with well, what in my early ordained life. Um, that's what we did. And um, that seems to break the rhythm. And even where we have it um, right at the end, but before the blessing still breaks the rhythm, there's actually no good place because the notices actually don't belong in the worship. Yeah. And what we're doing is breaking in to try and give people some connection to that which is after or beyond worship, whereas um, in a ideal world you just do the worship and then mm. somehow communicate in another mode and you get to find how that works. I mean, do you think um, many worshippers actually uh, are aware of, uh, of discussions of this sort, that, that you know, the, there are considerations about where the notice should be or, or whatever they are. Because um, I, I, I wonder, I would just wonder whether whether the level of interest, I mean, I, I, I suspect, my, my suspicion is that most people turn up and accept what's, what's given to them. But uh, it, would be, it would be nice, I think, if, if uh, there was a, you know, there was a greater awareness of, mm. of these sorts of issues. We have, we occasionally at some of our study groups, because they become really quite wide-ranging, people will make, will, will make a point like you did to say, well, you know, I actually find the notices are an interruption to the flow. And, you know, I've just taken communion. Um, we've said a prayer that is about sending us out and we're ready and wearing to go and to get blessed to do what you've just prayed we're going to do and you stop us <laughs> and you tell us about <clears throat> you know, coffee on coffee here and coffee there and when they can go to a study and we're looking for someone to do the flowers and you know sort of um, and, and they, they actually make that comment of it doesn't seem to belong and then we that leads to the comment oh well we could do it here but that didn't seem to work and um, but then if you don't have any notices your community life uh, suffers yeah. so you end up with mm. living in this knowing that it's not working mm -hmm. and for the, all the reasons you outline in your book that you know this actually is a, a 
particular experience and you know the notices we go from exploring the transcendent and encounter and mystery to bang into real practical stuff and the language become you know the language becomes completely the language changes so we're actually snapping out of one mode into another which is why it feels so clunky you know it, it actually from a, a non-church point of view for example it reminds me of going to a Coldplay concert at a stadium years ago and they ended with one of their most famous songs and you could almost sense this you know as can happen at big concerts sometimes this this almost euphoric experience in the crowd together they finish the last song they go off stage everyone applauds having had this moment all the big lights at the stadium come on and this big voiceover saying please ensure you have collected all your rubbish and you are, you know this announcement comes over the stadium and it feels quite jolting to go from this encounter or experience of something greater than ourselves straight into the logical here's now what must be done and here is the data you need about how to do the thing that must be done that transition is is uh awkward at, at best isn't it yeah yes but you've raised another interesting point which which is um you, you've drawn a similarity between the euphoric response at a rock concert and worship and uh you know what what is the difference uh, is all of this just tricks that uh, that um, you know in, of a similar similar sort or is it something different and, and or again with um, with Darren Brown when he did his um, his uh, sort of healing show you know how do you tell the difference between a religious experience of or a genuine encounter with God and uh, the tricks of a rock concert you know because because otherwise maybe we should be devising worship worship like a rock concert sure sure and there are places that do <laughs> <laughs> and and um and so again i think this is this this is an important thing as, as to validating religious experience which is which is why the first half of the book focuses on on that um and to me the, the i mean the, the key factor is is the way it affects the people's lives and the communities in which they live in i think that's what what would be would be different and, and if it's a genuinely if it's a, if it's a, an experience of which god is truly and critically a part that will be reflected in what happens subsequently mm. which should be different from a rock concert yeah mm. and i think i think that it's well said because i think that is the pivotal difference is that the rock concert does give people a, a sim some similar uh, aspects in terms of being, because it does take you out it, it, it can be ecstatic but I think the the key to religious experience is that it is transformational and that's that's not the story we hear after rock concerts on the whole is it, no. it, that it, it has been an experience but then you move on it's you know, and, and Dom's talking about how you manage that segue whereas the whole point of the, you know, certainly worship is that you are you have a, you've had the encounter and then you go out to make a difference and the liturgy actually sends you out to do that, and that's the bit people find is disrupted by having the notices where we have them in that we've we've primed them from encounter to be sent out and we did interrupt it and then expect them somehow to slip back into mode. Mm. Mm. It's a really interesting distinguish, uh, distinguishment, though, I think, yeah, between the, the worship experience and the rock concert, because you're right, and, and there are many people who probably do make the case now that what can worship do for us? What could a church service, a worship service, a worship encounter do for us that, for example, a stroll in the park couldn't or, you know, going to see a waterfall or going to see Coldplay live couldn't do for us? What, what's the necessity of this gathering and this, this ritualistic experience um, from a, a scientific point of view, in, in the book, Ken, how do you how, how can you tell us about how you look at this this idea of what um, what we can experience or what can happen for us in a, a worship encounter that perhaps doesn't happen elsewhere? Well, I, I, I think um, there's one aspect um, is is how um, well I, I talked about divine action before and how this was a, a problem a problem for me. Uh, in uh, in the past, but the the that a, a worship service sh ideally would would and would do something to uh, our brains and bodies which would make them more open to um, divine action. 
and um, and I think it is brains, brains and bodies. Uh, I mean, a, a, again, there, there is, you know, there's, there's sort of a bit biblical things. There's, there's the still small voice, which is one of the chapters, mm. is, is about, about how God could interact with our brains, and, and the mechanisms that I propose are quite subtle and consistent with that. But also, um, uh, heart strangely warmed. Uh, the disciples encountering Jesus on the road to Emmaus, our, our physiology is impo- important as well. But, but, um, uh, and it's it's difficult to know. I mean, how much depth do you want me to go into at this point? But but this essentially that that, that it is possible to envisage um, uh, a model for how God could interact with our brains and our bodies without interrupting uh, the laws of nature. Which I think is important because uh, I, uh, again, there's another another problem for me was was if God can break the laws of nature, why doesn't He do it more often to avoid um, disasters and so on? So, so we're looking for a way that uh, where God could interact with us, with our physical natures, without breaking the laws of nature. And uh, there are opportunities built in through quantum quantum mechanics and chaos theory, which could be explained with billiard balls, hence hence the title. Um, which would provide a means by which um, uh, God could actually interact with with us and change us, uh, and uh, and so I think that was where I would point the difference is, is that to make the worshippers um, at least some of the time more open to the to God's action. Mm, I thought that was a really helpful chapter um, because I. I you know, Basically, being brought up in an athe- not an atheistical household, but a non-religious household, where and science. I, I, I certainly was well into science before I had any religious encounter. Um, those same questions, I think, were very live for me, and I think they're the sort of questions that a lot of people hold because we come from a scientific paradigm, essentially, um, and. For the same reasons, you, if you, if God can muck around with things, when then God should be mucking around with a whole lot of other things, you know. And and for people who've experienced disaster and abuse, that's one of the questions they carry: is you know, if, if, why didn't God stop this? And so, um, being able to say, uh, well, we're actually part of a universe where people exercise free will, and the consequences of free will will flow and at the same time have have a way of showing how God can interact with us in a way that transforms us, I think was a really helpful um, part of the book. Mm. Uh, I'm interested to go back to something you mentioned earlier, Ken, about the tradition perhaps in the UK who, who thinks maybe let's get rid of the smells and the robes and all of these things that we don't really understand anymore, perhaps their argument because they're a bit outdated. I'm interested in, in going back to... Because you look at modern expressions or modern, um, I guess, denominations of, of the Christian faith, and a lot of them have done away with these... Uh, well, at least they, with explicit ritual. They still have all these liturgies through their service that are unspoken, but they've done away with the explicit liturgies. I'm curious, um, in, in your explanation, why do you think we have moved away from... Or, or many people have moved away from this desire for or understanding of, of liturgy in a worship service? Well, I should say it's not just the UK. In fact, it was a church in Queensland that prompted me to, to, to write, this, write this book. So it's, it's not, it's, I'm not going to name which one it is, but it's, um, it, uh, it's, a, universe. it's a Western thing. <laughs> it's a, yes, yes. Um, I, I mean, I, I wouldn't want to give the impression that, that, there are, that it has to be a traditional service for it to work. Uh, I, I just um, making a plea that, that if people are going to change the services, they need to be, uh, you know, they, they, they need to be aware that they may be throwing out benefits. I mean, so for example, the business of height, uh, a, a a church service in a woodland would have would have those 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 things, mm. um, and uh, and so. So it doesn't have to be traditional, but but I, it's just that it's worth paying attention to. To those parts of a traditional service for which it's possible to identify a mechanism for the benefits. Mm. Yeah, and you make the point well in the book that it's, you know, that a cathedral and a woodland have similar aspects to them, and they both work because they they have the similar uh, attributes. And I think that's I think that is right. It, it is possible to do 
It's it's in, 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 it's impossible to do all sorts of beautiful worship in all sorts of different spaces as long as you're attending to the very things that you're talking about about having meaningful well ha- you know hand hand gestures that make sense that actually work with the words to take people on a journey so that there's a there's a congruence between word and action um, and that it does actually take people on that journey and it, and even I've, I've celebrated in bushland settings and even there you still have this tendency of needing to go up mm. and the work as the words go up the hands go up and that all conspires to make it work for people and, and online environments uh, uh, another interesting area where where i don't think people have thought through these things because often you have subtitles that that uh, um I, I i haven't i've not watched one from st john's but but i have seen online services where the, where the words are put at the bottom of the screen or it'd be quite simple to put them at the top and if they're and if they're in god related words there's good reasons for them to put them as surtitles, not subtitles. And um, one thing that is quite interesting is that uh, during COVID, um, online exercise uh, programs, that, uh, there was one particular, I got, I got stuck in the UK during COVID, and one particular person got very, very popular for doing online fit, fitness and yet, the uh, reported ex- reported experience with online worship is trying to get people to do the body actions on an online service is is really quite hard. People, when asked, people they say, "Well, it makes me feel awkward or whatever." You know, there are there are some who are quite happy to do it. So, but the, so it should be possible online to do a lot of these a lot of these things. And, and considering that that it seems that a lot of people after COVID uh, would prefer to stay with online worship. Um, it's worth giving these these things attention too. I'm intrigued about this because I think it's I think what you've touched on or what you're touching on here through the book is something many, if not even most, churchgoers and and um, people with an active faith life probably don't even realise is going on in their faith lives. I think a lot of people who go to churches go to church because they hold these intellectual beliefs and and they would be able to articulate experiences and encounter. But the nuances of what's actually happening with all the movement and, and the way that a service flows, it, it is happening kind of like how music you mentioned earlier moves us. It's happening without our even awareness that it is actually happening. Um, so the, the reason I mention this is because in all of these conversations about what the tradition, you know, this declining tradition might evolve into and grow into next, which of these insights do we, do we most essentially need to listen to to take with us to ensure that we don't lose this encounter? Well, I don't. Know, I don't know. Pick, pick on, pick, pick on one. Um, Sorry, a bit more context. The reason I ask this is because I've been a part of maybe three or four different movements that have tried to create the next version of what a church service could look like or a gathering could look like, and they always have generally like a good burst. There's a there's an immediate burst early on, and then uh, within generally a year or two, there's a fatigue about how many words are being used. There's an, a sense that ego has crept in. And then there's argument about which songs we're using. And, and very quickly, the thing does turn into a, a critique of almost a performance. Yes. What did I think of the performance today and whatever else? And so the, I think there is this overwhelming will to, to find the way that this that the voice of God is trying to speak in new ways and, and meet people today. And, and I'm just wondering which elements of the, the science about what happens to us in an experience of worship might be helpful for people to take with them as they, they explore all these big questions about maybe if not a traditional worship service, what it could look like instead. Well, I, I think you make an interesting point that uh, that um, I, most people don't, most worshippers don't think about this thing. And I think there's why the, I have noticed that the book is, of the, 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 the demographics most interested in the book are actually ordained ministers hmm. because I guess they think about these things. Um, but the... the um, I think it would be hard, it would be hard to to pick one thing out. Um, I, I suppose I suppose if there's one thing I would want to pick out, it would be because I think it's been uh, in danger of being lost is the role of the of of the body, and in terms of uh, postures and movements, uh, and and those things because I think that's the the thing that that is most in danger of being mm. of being lost. It sure is, and it's one of the things that occupies us a lot in our clergy team meetings is 
because um, because we've been schooled in the world of being entertained these days um, there's a tendency in a lot of churches for people to sit for everything and then it becomes like a theater so you've got the passive audience who sit there and the performers up the top who do the show and and then people become detached from that whole body thing and so um, one of the things we often reflect on is just making sure that there is movement and that people are not just sitting for the whole show but they're standing and their bodies are turning um, before COVID we used to invite the whole congregation to go to the font for a baptism and we've got to get back to that so that we all moved and it had the dual function of um, us actually going to a different part of the church to do something different so there was a different focal point that was we're moving from the lectern to the font and then to the altar it also meant that we actually provided a community of support for the candidates who were no longer at a distance and separate but so there's the whole but it's really i think it's the body thing is really important otherwise the otherwise we just become the watchers but at the same time, we, I, uh, and it's something that troubled me when, when writing this, is I hadn't really, wasn't in a position to give, give it any attention just just because I didn't know anything about it. But it, but clearly there are people who can't do that. Uh, and sure. uh, mm. it may be that there are, that we, sh- we should be using this knowledge of, of uh, uh, you know, the science related to worship to... M- meet their needs in, yeah, a, in a different good way good point rather mm. than uh, i mean it's um it, it 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 doesn't strike me as as being ideal just to say well you can do this if you want or if you're able mm. uh, it, it's like uh, and i have no great ideas of what to, or how to do this but, sure. it, but it would be nice to, to have uh, some thought as to how these responses could be uh, encouraged in people who are unable to do the, you know, to mm. kneel or stand up or whatever. Yeah, I think the other thing that I would want to take of the principles you talk about in the book is, is to make sure that the worship space does have some complexity to it. So I really found that quite powerful. The, the that correlation between. Um, plain straight lines um, in a worship space tends to make people think that the faith is plain and straight and therefore the level of tolerance drops I think and there's a tendency in very modern buildings to go for very minimalist um, architecture um, and it's because it's cheaper I mean but I think taking complexity into the space in some way um, is going to be really important. Yes, and 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 I I I suggested in the book that uh, that maybe making spaces complex is a, is a way of encouraging a, a, an attitude to the faith that is more tolerant. Mm. I I mean, an association is not the same as an intervention, so uh, sure. it's it's not it's not been demonstrated. Um, but um, uh, it, I I think it would be useful. You know, you were mentioning before about about. Uh, non-faith communities are not being aware of, of the experiential part of, of, of religion. I think they're also not aware that there are different, a different uh, science has shown different um, orientations towards religion. So there's this um, there's this quest one that you're, that you're talking about, where people see religion as a quest for truth, um, and the intrinsic or extrinsic ones, and and that, that there are these. Um, different approaches t- to religion. I, I, I'd quite like more people to be, be to be aware of that. And um, and again, there is an issue of uh, of how you uh, how you accommodate all those different approaches. I'm I'm really curious as we move to the end of this this conversation, Ken. And speaking about embodied, we speak about embodiment a lot on the podcast in terms of this sense that I think most of us or a lot of us have this belief that a faith life is something that exists in the brain. So we make a decision, uh, you know, even the question, do you believe in this, yes or no, is sort of still re- really the, the starting point. Um, moving to a, a more deeper, broader, embodied sense of what it is to be a human being and participate in this divine mystery. 
Um, I'm curious how you think we can find more ways to, maybe from a principal point of view, more ways to actually move this thing from the mind into the, the body as a whole. Um, and obviously we've been doing that for, for thousands of yeah. years and that, that does exist in the liturgy as it is. But are there new ways you think that we can look at, at doing this? Well, I, I think my first comment would be that the understanding of the word believe has changed and um, and that has become, in I guess since the Enlightenment, uh, in, the, in the sense of commitment to a, a what, sort of intellectual assent to a proposition. Whereas really, uh, it should be commitment in the sense of, of not just, you know, I think that's true, but I think it's true and it changes my life. And again, we're back to this idea of transformation. So I, I, th I think, um, I mean, it's a big ask, but, but to, to actually, to actually um, encourage a more nuanced view of what belief means uh, would, be, would be helpful. And maybe in, in a school context, that might be something that would be, be poss possible to, uh, to achieve. Um, I mean, and the, on the other side of that is is this this side of the word faith, um, you know, which um, which Richard Dawkins defined as as belief in 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 the you know the modern sense belief um, in the absence of evidence, which uh, to me I think is a, is the wrong definition, and uh, to me belief is is commitment despite uncertainty. And um, and so, and there are ways that which you can draw from science as to how to deal with uncertainty. And a lot a lot of people um, struggle with uncertainty. But in fact, in medicine, it, medicine it, uh, there was a, a famous physician, William Osler, who described medicine as the science of uncertainty. And um, I think we can draw on on uh, though that sort of experience and knowledge to encourage people to to deal with un uncertainty uh, and to and to see belief as not being about about ascent, you know ascent, ascent, about acknowledging a particular intellectual idea but about about what you do mm. and and it's probably really interesting to mention on that front how many of the new age spiritual traditions um, actually don't have that much of an intellectual framework to what they do they are often grounded in body movement and, and um, embodied rituals and practices almost like you know they had there was some deep innate sense within the, the human experience that this whatever this dimension of life is is something to be experienced more than just in the brain and uh, and because the the christian strain hasn't had much room for that they've just gone off and I don't know. It's found it's it's found its its way out some other some other way. Perhaps is that a fair way of putting it? I think it's been a, a mystical tradition within within Christianity. Um, I just that it's uh, not been emphasised very much. Yeah, that was certainly my experience. It's 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 real and it's rich and it's deep. Um, but we got so caught up on arguing arguing over things because that's what the Enlightenment paradigm is about. Because it it came down to uh, truth and being right and trying to defeat other people that we actually didn't invite people into the lived experience um, and for me um, you know, that was that was what got me in was actually the lived experience of a bunch of people who were just enjoying worship in the most beautiful quiet gentle way um, mm. and how we get that message out is one of the challenges, I think, for the faith. Yeah. Because, you know, there's an increasing increasing view in out in the world that we're just basically a bunch of people who want to say no to a whole lot of stuff. And that and and that's where a lot of the churches put their money and their in their time is into trying to influence public policy in a way that um, is you know swimming against the tide almost, whereas you know, we don't spend a lot of time inviting people into retreats and the experience, and and yet, yeah, you know, the building here—that's what it, that's what it does all day in day out. Mm. People walk into that place, they sit quietly and pray, they light candles, they become deeply reflective. And you can see the process of transformation taking place without anyone saying to them, you have to believe this or you have to believe that. They're, they're actually, they're using their bodies. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. But it's a really good point you've just made there, there, Peter. And I know I'm reflecting a little bit on um, at the school I work at this year. We, we took 16 students to Uluru and on a, a faith and spirituality retreat. And the reason behind it was I felt like I had been rabbiting on at them in our Tuesday afternoon worship sessions uh, for a few years about awe and wonder and this being an enchanted, sacred, divine reality. And, and ultimately, I thought, I, I kind of don't want to prosecute the case anymore. I sort of just want to let it be the case. And so, you know, we went out there and it was kind of quite wonderful as we walked into Cutter Judah uh, one afternoon and I looked at the faces of these students and, and you know, it was this moment again of going, the, the God that I believe in that we are talking about is a God big enough to know what, what that God is doing in this encounter. I don't, I can just get out of the way <laughs> And let this experience and encounter and embodied awareness of what you were talking about earlier, Peter, awe and wonder, just do do its own work. And and I, I that's one thing that I kept coming back to reading the um the book, Ken, was this idea that often it's it's us getting in our own way in terms of this this encounter and this experience is our need to prod and analyze and and um you know almost overthink the whole thing all the way through can actually get in the way of what the thing's actually trying to do in us. Yeah, well, I mean, that's the, the irony of it, because people could accuse me of overthinking in the way I've written this book. <laughs> but the, the, the important thing is not to do it at the same time. Yeah. yeah. And I, I must admit, I do find myself sometimes in a church service thinking, oh, look, that, um, you know, like the, uh, the, the, the kite that's used in the cathedral here, which I, I love. But then I'm thinking about well, why do I love this kite and what if, effect it has, rather than just being affected by it. So, so it... it, it if anyone's going to overthink, it's me. <laughs> I do like that, though. There is a place, for example, returning back from an Uluru trip to reflect on what happened in you and analyse what happened in you. But that time isn't when you're at, yeah. at Uluru. It's yeah. afterwards. And, and reflecting on what happens in worship absolutely has a place. But when you're in the experience of worship, letting yourself just be in the experience of worship. And I'm glad you took those uh, students out into some such a beautiful place for the experience of awe and wonder because... Uh, school assembly halls are not known <laughs> for, not noted for being places of awe and wonder and they're not designed for transcendence uh, uh, look I, I think this this book is so wonderfully helpful ken in in i mean in a world that that does seem quite interested in in removing anything that could be deemed as fluff or unnecessary in actually making the case, no, some of the stuff that are, that some might deem as fluff and as unnecessary is actually the very heart of what it is that does this divine work in us. Uh, fluff and unnecessary or old-fashioned or um, that somehow churches are being um, museums for ancient rituals when, when in fact that these things um, have been adopted through trial and error and that now we have science that shows why the, the, the ones that have been retained have been retained. Yeah, that's wonderful. Well, the book is From Billiard Balls to Bishops, A Scientist's Introduction to Christian Worship. Ken Miles is the author. Ken, it's been so wonderful sharing a conversation. Thank you so much for, for making time. No, thank you.